Let me add my welcome on this uh, beautiful morning. And uh, near to you is a pew Bible. And if you turn to page 41, uh, we're going to read from Genesis chapter 37. You can read it also on the uh, screen. Uh, For those who may be visitors, we have been, since last September, walking through the book of Genesis, looking at some of the great stories of the book of Genesis, and we've arrived at the last three sermons on Genesis. So this Sunday, next Sunday, and the first in August, we're going to be looking at aspects of the life of Joseph. And uh, we pick it up this morning in chapter 37, when Joseph is just 17 years old. Jacob, that's his father, lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob and his family. Joseph A young man of 17 was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now, Israel, that's Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. And he made a richly ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and couldn't speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to the dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered round mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream. And he told his brothers, listen, he said, I had another dream. And this time the sun, moon and stars were bowing down to me. And when he told his fathers as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down? to the ground before you. His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Now, his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, as you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring word back to me. So he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, what are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me uh, where they are grazing their flocks? They've moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance. And before he reached him, them, they, he plot, they plotted to kill him. Here comes the dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the desert, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. 
So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamented robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. And as they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites, not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, dipped the robe in his blood. Then they took the ornamented robe back to their father and said, we found this. Examine it to see whether it's your son's robe. He recognized it and said, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, in mourning will I go down to the grave to my son. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. This is God's word, and uh, we give him thanks. July 1967 was a vintage year for me and my wife Jan. We were celebrating our first wedding anniversary, and in the month of July 1967, I was ordained as a pastor into Christian ministry, and a few weeks later, uh, took up my first pastorate in Whetstone, Leicester. In the summer of 1967, three men began a conversation. One called Alan, one called Andrew, and one called Tim. Alan was a music master at St. Paul's School in London, and uh, he asked his friend Andrew if he would write a piece of music for the school end-of-term concert. Andrew got in touch with his friend Tim, and at first they began to work on a spy theme around the sort of 007 kind of idea. But eventually they settled on another theme, and on the 1st Mar- of March, 1968, in the old town hall Hammersmith, Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice presented the first production of Joseph and his amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. It lasted 15 minutes. The next was uh, Central Hall, Westminster. That happened in May 1968. Two and a half thousand people. And then in November, they took over St. Paul's Cathedral. And a recording was made of it. And the, the play, the musical, became famous really through that recording. So here we are 45 years later, thousands of productions later, and that version of Joseph, the Andrew Lloyd Webber, Tim Rice musical version, uh, is so well known. And I think next Sunday, we may even have a burst of music to accompany the story. So why did they reject the 007 theme? 
What was it specially about the Joseph story that lured these two great composer lyricists into the story that has now gone worldwide, the story we've had this morning? I think it's this, because I think the human story of Joseph is such a compelling story. Wonderful description of characters, some of the greatest prose in the Bible. You have a hero, you have villains, you have all the things that happened to Joseph, and you have the most unlikely outcome from prison to the Egyptian equivalent of number 10 Downing Street. It's like a, a soap opera. Uh, you could easily drop some of the ingredients of the plot of Joseph into EastEnders uh, or Coronation Street, but with this difference. Most soap operas that we have, are they're all about human nature and there's no grace involved. That's why you never expect Ian Beale or Phil Mitchell to change. If they did, they wouldn't be in the soap opera. The fact is they stay the same. The fact is that the, the predictable things you don't want them to do, that's the very thing they do do, because that's what happens in soap opera. It's all human nature and no grace. The difference with a Bible story such as Joseph, the rawness of human nature is there, but it's filled with God's grace. So the whole thing has some unlikely things. Just when you say, where on earth can God be at work in this? He is. And we're asked when we open the Bible to see our own life story in the picture that we're being shown. And that will happen this morning. Not in every point. You won't say, well, that's like me. Or that. But some points of here you'll say, wow, that is like looking in a mirror. So we're going to turn to this life story of Joseph and we're going to look at it uh, on uh, three uh, consecutive Sundays. And I want you to look out for some big themes before we get stuck into chapter 37 this morning. Here's the first thing. I want you to look for the hidden hand of God. By the hidden hand of God, I mean God was not mentioned in chapter 37 this morning. We read through his name was not there. And we'll, we'll see that a number of times. But God, if you like, is like the absent presence. It's very obvious that God is with Joseph because one of the recurring um, phrases that happens from about chapter 39 on is God was with Joseph. But here in the opening chapter, no mention of that. So it's as if God is absent from the center stage, but his voice is heard off stage. That's the first thing. Look for the hidden hand of God. The second is, look for the hidden hand of God working in all things for the good of Joseph. Now, if you're a Bible student, you'll say, well, that sounds remarkably like a life verse, Romans 8.28. Absolutely. Romans 8.28 says this, we know that in all things, God is working for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. If you want a story as an illustration of Romans 8.28, you've got it here. It's a wonderful example of how in all things God is working for the good of Joseph. In the unfair favoritism of his parents, in the hatred of his brothers, in being sold into slavery, in facing a false charge of sexual harassment, in going to prison on trumped up charges, of languishing in prison when people forgot him, in pondering how on earth will I be reconciled to my family. It's going to take 22 years. We're being asked to see that in all these things, God is working for the good of Joseph. In fact, by the time we get on the third Sunday to chapter 50, we'll have the great life verse, which some of you know. Eventually, everything comes together. Joseph looks at his brothers and says, 
You intended to harm me, but God intended all this for good. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. So look for the hidden hand of God. Look for the hidden hand of God working in all things. And look for the hand of God shaping Joseph through circumstances. R.T. Kendall has written a great book on the life of Joseph. And uh, he tells the story of the sculptor who's going to make a horse out of a huge block of marble. And if somebody says to the sculptor, how are you going to do it? And the sculptor says, it's simple. I begin to chip away, and I chip away everything that doesn't look like a horse. God does that with human lives, when human lives are responsive to him. Romans chapter 8 says that he's predestined us to be conformed, shaped, to the image of his son. He wants to shape those who are followers of his to the image of Jesus, how Jesus was in his character, in his love for God, in his love for people. Now, he he likes to do that. Uh, Some of his best work is done here on Sunday mornings at Mutley, Sunday evenings as well. But he also uses the circumstances of life to shape us. And one of the things we're going to see, I hope, this morning, is how the puzzling things that sometimes happen. How on earth can that be the shaping of God? Well, it's up to us to hand ourselves over to his wise shaping of our lives. So those, if you like, are just three things that help us to understand where we're going. Here's the first one we're going to look at, and that's the wisdom of God is the life shaper. And let's look at the first thing we meet in chapter 37. It's this. The past experiences that shape us. To understand Joseph, you have to meet um, his family. Now, for the past few weeks, if you've been here regularly, you know his family very well. Great-granddad Abraham, uh, granddad Isaac, and his father Jacob. And in this family is buried a shaping influence. Um, For example, he could have been shaped by his dad. Do you remember how we said about his dad, Jacob? Jacob was as crooked as a corkscrew. You you couldn't hide behind him. He was a double dealer, a wheeler dealer. He told lies, he cheated. Well, we must be very grateful that our hero wasn't shaped by his dad. But he was shaped by the next influence. The great love of his, his dad's life was his mother, Rachel. You'll know what happened. Uh, Jacob fell in love. It was love at first sight with Rachel as soon as he saw her. She was drawing water at the village well, and he saw her and, and kissed her and cried and then indicated that he wanted to marry her. And his hard-hearted future father-in-law said, yeah, you can have the hand of my junior daughter, youngest daughter, but you've got to work seven years. So he said, okay. I'll be your laborer for seven years. If at the end, I get the hand of the daughter. So he worked for seven years. And the Bible says it was as if it was just a few moments of time. Such was his love for this woman. Then you know what happens. The wedding day comes. And in the custom of the day, the bride is lying in a darkened room. The bridegroom comes in. There are petals all over the bed. The family withdraw. He gets into bed, Jacob, thinking that he's going to sleep with Rachel. When he wakes up in the morning... He's with the ugly sister, the one with the beautiful eyes, but it's not Rachel. He's been tricked. The man who is the swindler and the double-crosser has been double-crossed by Laban. And then Laban explains, well, he says, I I can't really give my younger daughter away until I've married the first one off. So work for me another seven years, and you can have the hand of the woman you love. 
So he does. But meanwhile, the family, if you think your family's a mess, you need to read this family. Dysfunctional. He, he ends up with four women in his life. The woman he didn't want to marry, Leah. The woman he did want to marry, Rachel. And then two other what we call concubines, which was allowed in those days. And between them all, they have 11 children. And um, one daughter, 11 brothers and one daughter. The problem is that the woman he really loves is barren. So he's producing children through these other women. But not only does he not love these women, it's obvious that none of the children that are born to these women are the apple of his eye. And then what happens, wonders of wonders, Rachel conceives and she produces this beautiful boy, Joseph. And this is what the Bible says in verse 23 of Genesis 30. When Joseph is born, Rachel says, my shame has disappeared. You realize the burden that is on this child, as young as the one we dedicated this morning? Suddenly he becomes the family favorite simply because of this wonderful love story between these two people. Is it any wonder that put him at enmity with his brothers? So he was shaped by this thing over which he had no control. He carries from this moment on. He wouldn't understand it at this age. He wouldn't understand it at seven or eight. By the time you get to 17, you know why you're the family favorite. You're the family favorite because your dad eventually produced this son called Joseph through his favorite woman. There's another burden that he carries which could have shaped him. He lives in a very violent and immoral house. It's an immoral house because the eldest brother, Reuben, sleeps with his mother, uh, father's concubine. Now, it isn't technically incest, but it's in the same league. And because of that act of Reuben, it's pretty obvious that Joseph, uh, Jacob takes the decision that Reuben, although he's number one son, will not carry the inheritance. That'll pass to his favorite, Joseph. Two other brothers, in defense of their sister, uh, Diana, she's been raped in a nearby city, so they go down to that city, and by intrigue, they murder every male in that city, blood everywhere. Then they come back and tell their father what they've done. Uh, he says, well, you've made our family name stink. That's the phrase that's used. Our family name is like a stench rising up from a manure heap. Because what you've done, actually, these people that you've killed will have friends in all the nations round about. Our family will now be threatened. And they come back and they say, well, we did this because they treated our sister like a prostitute. Now, young Joseph, 10, 11, is growing up in this very immoral and very violent house. He could have been shaped by that. And then the shadow of bereavement falls over the family, another shaping influence. Three deaths in quick succession. First of all, Deborah, who's been like a surrogate grandma. She was the nurse of his mother, she's lived with them for as long as he can remember, she dies. And then tragedy of tragedies, the darkest day when his mother Rachel dies. She dies in childbirth, giving birth to the youngest in the family, Benjamin. And overnight, Jacob is plunged into deep depression because the love of his life has died. And finally, in this succession of bereavements, the old granddad, Isaac, dies. He's 180 years old. He's been a huge figure in Joseph's life. All the stories that we've had in recent weeks about Abraham 
and Isaac and Jacob himself, they've all been passed on by his granddad, probably sat him on his knee and told him, your great-granddad Abraham, many, many years ago, left this place called Haran, made a huge journey down here. And there was a day, I remember it vividly, says granddad, when he took a knife. He laid an altar. He made me lie down. But before the knife came down, God intervened. That story that you know, Joseph would have been told by Isaac. But these people have gone. They've disappeared. So he's got the burden of a a cheating father, and he's been certainly shaped by an immoral and a violent household, and then the shadow of bereavement over a young man, losing his mum as young as he did. But there's a final shaping. And that's the shaping of what I would call childhood memories. What do I mean by that? There are things in my life and yours where things happen where there is a family trauma and you don't know the depth of meaning at the time. In my case, I can remember a swift exit from a school and a Sunday school. One Sunday I was in that Sunday school, one term I was in that school, and then for some reason that later I understood, there was a move. And perhaps there are things that are in your life where you look back and it's only later that your mum, your dad, or a grandparent or an aunt explain what has happened. This is true of Joseph. What happened in Joseph's life? Well, when he was probably no more than 10 or 11, suddenly one night his mum comes in and says, quick, get ready, gather all you can, get on the camel, we're running for our lives. Why were they doing this? Because Father Jacob had cheated Granddad Laban. He didn't know this at the time. So they have to get on the camel, they flee through the night, and after a number of days, Granddad comes hunting for them. Now, there is a little bit of reconciliation, but it's only many years down the line that this shaping influence of a family upset is explained. And then as they say goodbye to the granddad, suddenly, Dad, Jacob, becomes all panicky again. Why? He doesn't want to meet his brother Esau. He divides the family in two. He said, I want you lot over here, and you can have half the animals, and I want the other family over here, and you can have half the animals, because he knew that Esau was out to kill him. Why would Uncle Esau want to kill you? Well, because Dad's been a cheat and a liar again. So he's caught between these two pillars. He doesn't understand what's happening when he's 11. By the time he gets to 17, he knows. A shaping influence on his life. Let's leave it there. Let me ask you this. Out of the casebook history that I have as a pastor, I know how past experiences can shape us. I shared with this church family a few months ago about the woman that I met, she and her husband, in their 60s. When she was six years of age, her mother had looked at her and said, you're useless, you should have been born a boy. And she had carried that stigma of a title all the way around until Jesus Christ met her, gave her a new identity, and she realized she'd been shaped by that single comment of her mother. Or the man who I met who was a missionary. And the man who was a missionary um, disappointed his non-Christian dad deeply when he said, I want to be a missionary. Every member of the family had contributed to the armed forces. They'd all gone into either Army, Navy or Air Force. So this boy says, well, no, that's not the call of God on my life. So he was cut off. They never came to uh, family events. They didn't want to see their children or grandchildren. There were no birthday cards, no Christmas cards. Or the woman, and this can happen to a man as well, who married the wrong person. 
And the family said, this is not the person for you. But she said, this is the person I love. So she carries that shaping influence of the disagreement of the parents over the marriage. Or the woman who, when she was 13, was raped by her brother. And the family said, you must have an abortion. And then they blamed her for leading her brother on so that the responsibility for having sex was hers, not his. I could go on talking to you about people who feel shamed by family experiences, shamed by something happened at school. This is the point as we look at the story of Joseph. There were huge shaping influences in his life, but God protected him. God reshaped him into the image that he wanted him to be. And that's what God wants to do with all of us. Whatever the influences from the past that are brought to your mind this morning, name them, own them. See, when God brings you into his family, you and I are not the finished product. God uses his word, he uses Christian family like this. Sometimes he uses skilled Christian counselors in order that the disfigurement, the wrong shape that we are, is reshaped so we can become more like the person God intended us to be. The wisdom of God is the life shaper. Never allow your life to be shaped by past experiences, however dreadful they may be. Here's the second thing. You pick this up in the verses that uh, follow. The second thing is the present conflicts that shape us. When the brothers saw that their father loved Joseph more than them, they hated him. Three times you read that in verses 4 and 5 and 8. An escalating hatred. Some of you here know that my brother Ian used to be the pastor at this church and uh, he and Ruth are in Australia at the moment. And uh, this morning, as I drove down uh, from Torbay, uh, Ian phoned me. We've got a, a family gathering coming up and he and Ruth travel back next week from Australia. So I said, how did it go this morning? Remember, they're about 10 hours ahead. Always oh, said we went to church. Remember, the British Lions beat Australia Man United played a Sydney All-Stars 11 last night. They won 5-1. And we know how the Ashes is going in the second test. So Ruth, in her modesty, wore her British Lions shirt. Very humble. And um, Ian was interviewed by the pastor. He said, would you like to make a comment on Australians and sport? So Ian very tactfully said, he said, I don't wish to intrude on the private grief of a family at this time. <laughs> Jan and I were at an event last night down towards Kingsbridge and as we made our way home we turned the radio on and it was a cricket phone-in and this South African guy came on and uh, Tuffers, Phil Tufnell and uh, um, oh I forget, uh, Michael Vaughan were leading the phone-in. This guy from South Africa was really full of hatred. I mean there were people who had opinions about the Australians but wow, I, I think they must have had the button to switch him off right there. Hatred is, is a madness of the soul. Begins sometimes with jealousy and envy, as it did with the brothers. But if it really takes root in a person's life, it always ends in violence. Verbal violence. Or physical violence. So why this escalation of hatred in the brothers of Joseph? Well, the first is obvious, and that's favoritism. They knew that he was dad's favorite. And dad made it obvious that he was favorite when he gave him this fantastic coat. 
Uh, it wasn't like a workman's coat, which would have been sleeveless. And this coat was from down to the sleeves and down to the ankles. It was a pretty obvious sign to the brothers that this was an overlord, an overseer, a boss. It was a boss's garment. It was also more than that. It was a sign that this is the person who will inherit the family jewels. It would have been Reuben, but Reuben had slept with his father's concubine, so he was out of the picture. So Joseph, not the next brother in line or the next, but Joseph, way down the line, has been elevated to this chosen position. Number one reason for hatred. Father's favorite coat to prove it. Second reason for hatred is that Jacob saw the opportunity, it was wrong of him to do this, to get Joseph to report on his brothers. You read that in verse 2, he brought a bad report of his brothers. You read it in verse 14, where the brothers by now were 50 miles away, more than 50 miles away, and Jacob unwisely and foolishly sends Joseph, younger brother, and say, tell me how things are going on. The best you can say about Jacob is that he shows a fatherly concern for men who were cruel and callous, immoral and violent. He had a fatherly concern to know what was going on, and I can guarantee 50 or 60 miles away a lot was going on. So they hate him because he suddenly becomes the, the school sneak. The third reason they hate him is more complicated. Read verse 8. Verse 8 says that when Joseph shared his dreams with them, their hatred for him increased. Why would that happen? Well, I suppose if a 17-year-old comes down at breakfast time and says, hey, guess what? I had a dream last night. In fact, I had two dreams over a series of days. And in the first dream, uh, all the sheaves in the field were bowing down to my sheaf. And in the second one, it was about the constellations, the sun, moon, and stars. They were all bowing down to me. Well, Jacob is a wise man, and he's had some good experiences with God, and he rebukes Joseph and says, you shouldn't really have said that. He's young, he's 17, he's perhaps naive, he hasn't sort of realized the impact of not only the coat, but the dreams. That's why the brothers come back with such anger. Do you think we are going to let you rule over us? But here's the point. 22 years after these dreams... They come true to the letter. You do realize in the Bible, Genesis makes this plain, when dreams come in two, in God's eyes, they're fixed. That's what Joseph says to Pharaoh when he's asked to come before the great ruler of Egypt, interpret his dreams. Uh, Pharaoh says, I've had the same dream twice. And Joseph says, well, that means that God says this will happen. When dreams come in pairs, they're fixed. They're going to happen. It did happen. And what it means is, if you say to me, well, did he make these dreams up? No, no. They're a revelation from God. Dreams sometimes appear in Scripture as a revelation. We find that in the birth stories of Jesus. So this young man is not only his father's favorite, he's God's chosen person. And he's now carrying the burden of being God's messenger. It isn't just that the brothers hate him, because of the coat and because of the boasting dreams. They hate him without realizing it because he is revealing God's word for the future. This will happen exactly as the dream says will happen. This is the lesson I learn at this particular point and I want you to learn as well. The present conflicts that shape us. 
If God has chosen you to be his follower and by faith in Christ you become a disciple of Jesus Christ, you're sometimes going to live out in that world, in that family, as the only person who understands the meaning of Jesus, his life and his life in you. And the best way I can explain it is to read to you some verses from the words of Jesus, and uh, you find them in, in John chapter 15. Listen to this, John chapter 15, verse 18. Jesus, to you. If the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of this world. And that's why the world hates you. Now that's not true every day of your life. But there will be moments when these words are for you. And this might be such a moment. So don't be shaped by the pain and the pressure of being hated and despised because you've been chosen by God. Say to God, Lord, I want to be at this moment shaped by your wisdom. Why are you allowing me to go through this period where I do feel under great pain and pressure for the present conflict I'm going through? All that's happened is I've been chosen by you and I'm bearing your word faithfully. It's all that Joseph did. He suffered for it. It wasn't just the coat. It wasn't just the favoritism. It was the fact that he was God's chosen messenger. In fact, there's a verse in the Psalms that speak very plainly that uh, Joseph in Psalm 105 verse 19, the word of the Lord was a burden to Joseph. That's why the brothers hated him. Here's the third thing. And that is the challenging circumstances that shape us. The challenging circumstances that shape us. I don't think the Joseph story descends into any deeper misery than the last part of the story. And what I'm asking you to believe, and it's an impossible belief without faith, it's this. God was with Joseph. That's the great refrain that runs all the way through the story. Not in this chapter, but later on. God was with Joseph. So, is God with Joseph when a father who should have known better sends a young man of 17 off to be with brothers who we know are violent, immoral, callous and cruel. That's what Jacob does. It's a journey probably of about 50 miles and we're being asked to say, yes, God is with him in this journey. And then what happens when he gets lost, which he does? Is God with him then when a total stranger comes up and says, can I help you? Can I give you directions? And he says, well, I don't know whether you've seen, you know, my brothers, they've been grazing sheep. He said, yeah, I heard they said they were going to Dothan. Dothan? is about another 20 miles further on. So he's already 50 miles from home, lost and lone. This total stranger guides him deeper into the danger zone. Not, I would go home if I was you. So we've been asked to believe, yeah, God's with him in this. And then we have these violent brothers who see him coming over the hill. Let's kill the dreamer. It's a story of planning, of violence, of intrigue, it's, it's a story that's going to leave this, uh, this dear man um, uh, in a pit of despair. They physically attack him. They rip off the coat. They drop him in a cistern. 
a cistern, dozens of them all over the desert, bottle-shaped. They're dug out. The the neck is narrow. Uh, It was meant to capture water. But, of course, it's a dry season, so there's no water in there. So they drop Joseph through the narrow entrance, bottle-shaped entrance, and there he's lying in the darkness of the pit. And then what happens in verse 25, um, impossible to escape, as they sat down to eat their meal. If you've got your Bible, just read that verse. If you don't understand what's happening at this moment, you won't understand later why Joseph finds it difficult to forgive them. He is obviously crying out from the depths of the pit, don't do this to me, don't leave me here to die, while they callously sit down to have a meal. It's only later, much later in Genesis 42, that we realize these brothers had nightmares about this. You've had that experience where you've been involved in something, it may have been something criminal. It's something that's been deeply damaging to somebody else. And at the moment you get swept away, but as the years go by, it comes back and you wake up in a hot sweat. Nightmares. These boys had had nightmares for what they did because they tell us that. We saw the distress of his soul when he was in the pit, when he begged us to free him and we didn't listen. This is a story of conspiracy, violence, indifference, and then with old man Jacob deception. They show him the blood-stained coat, the blood of a goat, and he draws his own conclusions and they let him believe the lie. You're asking me to say God is with him? Yeah. Is he but for the providential hand of God and a passing slave trader caravan? Joseph would have perished in that pit. God is with him. In a father who should have known better, in a stranger that appears from nowhere, who brothers who conspire to kill him. And then God who wants this man in Egypt. Why does he want him in Egypt? Because he's going to be a savior. He's going to be a savior to his brothers. He's going to be a savior to his father. He's going to be a savior to the whole nation. And God chooses to bring his man by this method to the place where he needs him. Yes, God was with him. And I want you to see in these challenging circumstances a picture. And God will use it to interpret to your own mind. This man is helpless in a pit. You can't climb out of a bottle-shaped cistern in the desert. When they do get him out, and they wrap him in chains, and he's sold, and eventually sold on in a slave market, there is nothing he can do to change his circumstances. Do you recognize that? That in this picture of challenging circumstance, he couldn't use his wit or his wisdom or his dreams. He was bound and fettered and helpless and sold for 20 pieces of silver. Now, if you're really sharp, you'll say to yourself, wow, that's not unlike Jesus, exactly. Joseph is a type of Christ. What does it mean, a type of Christ? Someone who makes you think of Jesus before Jesus is born. That's a type of Christ. And Joseph is exactly that. He is a type of Christ. The conspiracy to kill, the violence, the indifference, the deception. All the things that surrounded the innocent life of Jesus. Who hangs on a cross as an innocent man for you and for me. And then is laid in a cistern, which is a grave. He's not just alive in the cistern, he's dead in the grave. But then God raises him up. And we're being asked to see in this life story of Joseph... The life story of Jesus, and of course the life story of Jesus, 
God's pattern is to shape us after his image, is that death happens in us that resurrection might take place too. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we carry in our bodies the marks of the death of Jesus in order that in our bodies, it's a very fleshly thing, life, flesh and blood, in our bodies, the resurrection life of Jesus might also shine through. So your prayer and mine as we come to the end this morning is this, Lord, may we not be shaped by the past experiences, the bad experiences of family and school and environment and everything else that brings us to today. I want your shaping, Lord. And may we not be shaped by carrying the burden of your word. You chose me to be your disciple. You sent me out with a word of witness. May I not be overwhelmed by the pain and pressure of that, but shape me to understand what it, what it means to be a cost, cross-bearing, costly cross-bearing disciple in the world. And these circumstances I find myself in at the moment, where it may not have physical chains on the wrists, I may not be in the the well of a system unable to climb out, but I do feel helpless. I'm not going to be shaped by that. I'm going to dare to believe God is with me. My dear old uh, grandma Willis uh, died at the age of 99 years and six months. I think I've told you about it before. She broke her leg in number of times, and the doctor used to say to her in her 90s, Mrs. Willis, you are so healthy, you will never die, we will have to shoot you. Very, very kind. In her Bible, and I may have shared this with you, she had this wonderful bookmark, as old grandmas did. On one side, it said, God is love. May have been given to her by her mum, I don't know. But when you turned it over, this hand-embroidered thing, On the other side, it was a mass of stitching. You could not see that God is love when you looked at it from the wrong side. And all God is saying to you this morning is look at the side that God is shaping. If you allow him to, in his wisdom, you will see running through that side which is being shaped by him, God is love. As long as you choose to see the side that makes no sense, you will stay in confusion, be shaped by the wisdom of God this morning so that he can reshape you into what he intended. I want you to remain seated and live this, sing this lovely song as the musicians come and join us. Caroline, let's see the words of uh, the song we're going to sing. Father, I place into your hands the things I cannot do. I cannot shape my life, Lord. I place into your hands the things I've been through. I place into your hands the way way I should go. For I know I can always trust you as the God who shapes us in wisdom. Three verses. Remain seated or just listen to the words as they're sung to us.